On this episode of the program, we are going to begin the month of debate prep by focusing on an old Nikki Haley debate. There's some good stuff in there. You're going to want to hear it. And exactly how much money has Donald Trump spent on legal fees through his political action committee? And is it really true that he spent more money than he's brought in this year? Oh, yeah, it is. And we get clarification from the money man, Dave Leventhal. All that coming up. This is made possible by Dustin Campbell, Oh Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023. Who the hell let it be August? It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young, joining you from Austin, Texas, wherein we have, like the rest of the nation, begun debate month. Oh, yeah, it's back. It's back. The made for television spectacle. The first of the Republican primary and based on the polling, I don't know how many of these we're going to get. In fact, I would suspect, unlike the Democratic debates of last cycle, this crowd might thin pretty fast. We have a pretty lopsided field. It looks unlikely that the front runner is going to be there. So if they don't get ratings and also Republican debates have not been easy to put on. That's another underreported part of all this is that networks don't necessarily want to put them on. They will for the ratings. So if Trump's there, it's going to be easier to sell, but if Trump's not going to be there, then it's a lot of money. It's a lot of hassle. You can get a lot of criticism because everybody in the media is liberal mostly. And so you will get flack from the Democrats and other liberal folks that you are spreading misinformation and you didn't push back hard enough. And then if you do push back, then all the candidates are mad at you because you were not allowing them to talk. You were just doing your own show. And so it, it's a hassle. And that's on top of the fact that it's harder to sell advertising right now. Television advertising is a bit of a mess. So long story short, this may or may not be the only debate that we get. <laughs> I, I don't think that it's likely. I just want to put it into the realm of possibility because there's a lot of factors at play here that are conspiring against us having a gigantic and fruitful debate season. And that, as many of you know, longtime listeners know, is devastating for me personally, not only because I am the same 
vacuous uh, content buzzard as everybody else in the media. I desperately need things to talk about. And, oh, baby, debates are, capital T, things to talk about. But also because I love television debates. And and I say television debates because they are a different genre than a Lincoln-Douglas-style debate or a, a forum for, for folks who enjoy that kind of thing. There is a very interesting superficial quality to political television debates. And I would encourage folks to go back and listen to the reason why this is, because it goes back to the very first one, Kennedy versus Nixon, 1960. Those of you who have listened to my history show, Raise the Dead, you know I spend a lot of time on this debate and specifically the uh, fake idea, the apocryphal idea that Nixon succeeded on radio when Kennedy succeeded on television. Some of the myths that go into it. I won't spend a lot of time on that here, but spoiler alert, a lot of that is crystallized after the fact when Nixon became Voldemort and Kennedy became Jesus. And so the idea of Nixon being repulsive on television is something that we've sort of added in. We've, we've, we've wiki edited history to make that more real. What is absolutely true is that Kennedy realized what a television debate was before Nixon did. And if there's one thing that is absolutely true, it is that Nixon expected that debate to play out like a college style debate, like an Oxford style debate. One in which the person who is making big, bold points up front will later be dissected and embarrassed by the person who is better prepared. And so what Nixon did is often agree with JFK. He would, and and this is a very Oxford style debate kind of uh, strategy to say, uh, uh, yes, I agree with points, this, this, and this. And now I'm going to add new context. Now I'm going to add new facts. Now I'm going to inject my spin on it. So it's going to make it seem like you were making my argument for me, therefore making the opponent look foolish. What Kennedy realized was that this is a television commercial. It is a, it is competitive television commercialing. That is what this debate is. When you have this amount of access to the American people, and that was an extraordinarily well-watched debate, a debate that was so well-watched and so iconic and so influential that the idea that Nixon lost the election because of it, which, again, I don't believe in, go listen to Raise the Dead. There's a lot that goes into that election. But the idea that that was the case leads the entire concept of television debates to be effectively mothballed on the presidential level until Carter. It's a pretty wide uh, a, a swath of time, right? So we pretty much go through the 60s and the 70s <laughs> effectively until somebody has 
the Babalones to go back on television and debate their foe in uh, the presidential arena. And so, since then, not a lot has changed, oddly. In fact, the only thing that's changed is that nobody makes the mistake that Nixon made. You don't actually try to agree with your opponent. And if you do, you better get to the point where you knife them immediately. It's a high-risk move. You are, effectively, looking dead to the camera and talking to everybody for whom is watching you. It demonstrates courage under fire. It demonstrates the ability to improv. And because it is so tension-laden, it really rewards people who can be funny in the moment. If you can hit the moment with the right joke, they will be the most iconic lines that might come out of your mouth. Barack Obama is probably the best example of somebody that was exceptional with this to the point where it covered the fact that his jokes were (laughs) kind of snide and a little obnoxious, but nobody thinks of Obama as, as obnoxious because his timing was so impeccable. And I'm thinking of two moments in specific here. One was in the primary debates with Hillary Clinton, where he said to Hillary, you're likable enough. My question to you is simply this. What can you say to the voters of New Hampshire on this stage tonight who see your resume and like it, but are hesitating on the likability issue where they seem to like Barack Obama more? Well, that hurts my feelings. I'm sorry, Senator. I'm sorry. But I'll try to go on. (laughs) He's very likable. I I agree with that. I don't think I'm that bad. Um, Uh, You're likable enough. Thank you so much. Now, this clip is amazing. And, And there's a reason why I wanted to break it down, because it shows you how much I love the nuance of these debates. So the question is, how do you respond to the idea that you are less likable than Barack Obama to Hillary Clinton? And obviously, Hillary Clinton understands this. She's a numbers person. She's a very detail-oriented candidate. Some would say too detail-oriented at times, that she is not uh, warm enough, that she has paralysis because she is too numbers-driven. Kind of sounds like a certain governor from Florida right now. But Hillary Clinton has asked this. And to the credit of the Hill Dog, she has a perfect answer. Because there is a gendered element to this. That Hillary Clinton isn't feminine enough. That she is a strong leader and therefore she is bitchy. This is something that has dogged Hillary Clinton. And as we would find out in 2016, we were nowhere near done with the feminist discourse around her. However, in this moment, she gives the perfect beginning of an answer to this question. Because she flashes absolute femininity. Oh, shucks. You just hurt my feelings. 
but she does it in a way that because we know who she is, we know she's being funny. We know she's playing coy and, and we know that there is more to her because that's the advantage of being defined. This is something that I'll talk about a lot throughout these debate prep uh, segments that we're going to do throughout August leading up to the debate is knowing yourself, knowing what the audience on the other side already thinks of you is a gigantic advantage. And if you don't know that, and if you don't play to that, then you're at risk of double hammering in stereotypical elements that could harm your campaign. At the very least, you're not taking advantage of moments that would stick out in the minds of the viewers. So Hillary gets a great laugh. You hurt my feelings. And then pays an earnest compliment. Would a bitchy type A woman do that? No. She's generous. Which is why it is barbarically savage. The way that Obama just lops her head off, just lops her head off because she is being earnest. And what she is hoping to do is to garner likability. And what does Obama do? He just says, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're likable enough. Now, he has come back and said he did not mean that. As a insult, I don't buy it. I think he totally scooped her heat. She had a great moment. And in one turn of phrase, Obama made it his. This is competitive commercials. These are, this is drag racing. This is not a duel. Go as fast as you can and Maybe it's a little bit of Mario Kart thrown in because you can you can throw a shell, but it can't get in the way of you crossing the finish line first. You have to make your argument first. And that's a great example of Hillary trying to reverse some of the damage that was baked into her character and Obama not only denying her, but also cementing the legacy of. Hillary Clinton's not likable because that was the headline coming out of that debate. Although shout out to the Hill dog, arf, arf, arf. She did win New Hampshire, which is what that question was about. So let's turn away from the past and toward the future for uh, the rest of our podcast episodes on our free feed. We are going to be watching old debates from the people that'll be on stage. On August 23rd on Fox News. And so we begin. You always know what your opponent's got to say because they've already told you. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? ready? Are you ready? Nikki Haley. Is our first case study. She has qualified for the August 23rd debate, and we've got some tape on her. She ran for statewide office twice in South Carolina. Uh, she won both times. 
And so we bring you into the first debate of her re-election campaign. This is going to be the last bit of televised evidence of her at her most prepared. Once you get into second and third debates, then you're, you're really kind of continuing some of the conversations that you've had in a first debate. This cycle did have two, but we bring you into this South Carolina governor's debate. There are five people on stage. Her biggest and realistically only challenger that she has to clear is a man by the name of Vincent Shaheen. He is another South Carolina state senator, like Nikki Haley used to be. And he was the man that Nikki Haley beat by four points in the first cycle in 2010. So let me give you my notes, and then we'll get into some clips that happened during the show. Number one, Nikki Haley is a television-ready politician. She understands that you have to make direct eye contact with the camera. You have to speak through the lens into the living rooms of the people for whom you hope to persuade. She also knows herself in that as a governor that was at the time very popular, she had to make sure that she presented the kind of gravitas that that character should. She also understands that her number one selling point was the economy. Now, let's get in under the hood a little bit. Why is that especially important for not only a woman, but a woman of color? Because the economy is the thing for which everyone agrees on. If the money's right, then a lot of other things are right. If the money's wrong, you can start digging under the carpet to see exactly why that is. At which point, Nikki Haley being a woman of color would not be an advantage. But as long as she can keep the the jobs, jobs, jobs rhetoric going, the better off she's going to be. And so let's get into our first clip. This is Nikki Haley on the economy. I understand you have a rebuttal you'd like to make? Yes, I would just, you know, just because you say something doesn't make it true. What we know is from the feds, our GDP has grown by 12%. But more than that, when you say only half of the jobs have come, we announced GT Tire. That's 1,600 jobs in Chester. Those don't happen overnight. We announced Continental back in 2011. Hundreds of people have been hired, but we still are going to 1,700. It will take a while for that to happen. What I can tell you, though, is ask those hundreds of families in Sumter how they feel. Ask those families in Chester that are getting ready to get those jobs. And on top of that, for small businesses, we've reduced taxes from 5 to 3%. Senator, you have a rebuttal as well? Thank you, I do. I think that I agree with Governor Haley. Just because you say it doesn't make it true. Copycat says what? You can never repeat a good line from your opponent. If you are going to mention what your opponent said, you better have a spin on it that's funnier or more interesting than what just came out of their mouth. As for Haley, clean, crisp. She understands who she is, and she is making sure that that gets through. Nikki Haley is doing a very good job. 
Like I mentioned before, there are five people on stage, which means you're definitely going to get at least one kook. (laughs) You're going to get at least one kook. And when I say kook, please understand that I mean this in the most loving way. I want more people on stage. I want everybody. I, I want five people on stage during the presidential debates. I would want Biden, Trump, as it stands now, Biden, Trump, Cornell West, and anybody else that wants to run. The libertarian, the, the, the guy that's on Rogan all the time. I'd want all of them on stage. Because I do believe that we should demonstrate that there is not only a wider variety of political thought than just the Republicans and Democrats, because while they are a de facto coalition, they are not the entirety of the American political spectrum, but also because while I treasure and love television debates and when it is only Republican and Democratic candidates, I can focus more tightly on best practices of mechanics. It still doesn't expand the repertoire of the ways you can get attention in a debate. And so I bring you Dr. Morgan Bruce Reeves. And a lot of the fifth guy on stage in these debates, they're not television ready. In fact, something you're not going to be able to see that is a difference when you are watching this visually is Dr. Morgan Bruce Reeves isn't looking dead in to the lens. He is not looking through my computer screen while I am watching it on YouTube. No, he is looking off camera. and That looks weird because my initial interaction with that is, why aren't you looking at the camera? But what he is doing is looking to all the people that are physically in the room because he wants to connect with them. It's not a bad way to live your life. It just ain't the television way to do it. And then, of course, there's the fact that Dr. Reeves probably didn't practice as much as Nikki Haley did. Maybe you can tell. Here is one of his answers. um, Let us let us let the rubble hit the road right here. Look at our campaigns. I'm a candidate that has zero amount of money in my campaign. I watch candidates both in our legislative branch and our executive branch spend over $10 million while our firemen are out there in big middle, uh, in the middle of intersections with the boot out asking for 25 cents to pay their bills. I will double the salary of any fireman. I will double the salary of any school teacher. I will double the salary. How am I going to do it? Our budget is 24 billion bucks. They can't raise the budget. So where do we get the money from? I'm a running back from Michigan State University. I prayed in the Pro Hall of Fame Bowl. Um, give me the ball. I'll get some yardage for you. Governor? I love you, Dr. Reeves. Here is Vincent Shaheen, Haley's big opponent in this cycle. And this is where he's hoping to leave a mark, right? He knows he's behind. And so he's going to have to take a shot. He knows he's going to have to do this. And I would expect that Nikki Haley is in a position where she's going to need to take a shot. So in the debate we're going to watch at the end of the month, Nikki Haley's going to be feeling a lot more like 
Shaheen than she did like herself in this debate. So this is Shaheen shooting a shot here, slamming Haley for being corrupt. We're actually going to play this entire back and forth, uh, both Shaheen's claim, Haley's response, and Shaheen's response to her response. Senator. Thank you. Our state government is thoroughly corrupt. If we want to have ethical government, we have to have ethical leaders elected, and it has to start at the top. We are never going to have ethical leadership in South Carolina if we have a governor, a governor who has been fined for violating the ethics laws, a governor who's abused the state plane and had to repay our taxpayer dollars, a governor who didn't report income from a consult from a doing consulting for a contractor that does work with the government. I mean, that's what we have right now. We have seen too many high-ranking elected officials in South Carolina whitewash ethics problems, get in trouble, and pretend like nothing has happened. It's wrong for Governor Haley to have violated the ethics laws and been fined. It is not acceptable and will never have ethical leadership as long as that's the example being set. We have to have ethical leaders elected, and that's what we'll have when I'm elected governor. You know, we need to have someone who has fully disclosed their income. I turned my tax returns over for the last 14 years to the press and said, have a look. We need an independent investigatory body in the legislature, but also in the governor's office. The governor appoints her and own Senator, ethics commission. Senator, your time's expired. Thank you. Governor? Thank you. Ethics reform has been a strong part of everything that I've done from the time when I was a legislator and I fought to get legislators to vote on the record. Now they vote on the record on every piece of legislation and on every section of the budget. We fought for income disclosures. We fought for term limits as a legislator. And I agree with everything Mr. French said in terms of where we need to go. But we have said and very strongly said for the last two years, we need to have income disclosures and we need to have independent investigations. We can't have senators overseeing senators. That's not going to work. And it's amazing to me that he can, that Senator Shaheen can say these things knowing that we had ethics reform the last two years in a row and he voted to kill it the last two years in a row. You know, the thing is, if you're going to talk about ethics reform, it's not about what you say, it's about what you do. And to have him vote against it twice is really a slap in the face to everybody here. In terms of what you're saying were ethical violations against me, I was found not guilty on any of those things. And the reason y'all got mad that I took the plane is because I was calling y'all out for what you were doing in the legislature. So you pulled my rights away. Senator, your rebuttal. Well, it's mighty funny you didn't do anything wrong, Governor Haley, when you were fined for doing it. And, you know, I'll never vote for a bill that's a fake bill, a bill that just allows a legislator to claim they did something or a governor to cover up her trails when she has violated the ethics laws over and over again, because that is wrong. And it's exactly what's wrong in Columbia under your leadership. We have legislation that's meaningless that Governor Haley or other legislators then claims they accomplish things. We have elected officials who violate the ethics laws like Governor Haley and then try to promote ethics bills to cover up their trail. That hypocrisy is exactly what's wrong in South Carolina. time's expired. Notice the order by which Haley deals with Shaheen. She knows that she is going to be hit on this. And so I want to highlight for you the order in which she answers. First, the most explosive, dishy stuff that Shaheen says are personal claims. That Haley is personally corrupt. She pivots from that. And then before she gets into any specifics of what he says, gives a little, uh, well, I, you know, isn't it rich that you are lecturing me on this because you're corrupt. 
And in fact, every time I tried to deal with this, you voted against it. And then at the end, she defends the specific issues that Shaheen brought up. This is important for a few different reasons. Number one, if she leads with the defense, that means Shaheen is leading the argument. That to me is an inexperienced or mistaken debate tactic. You are not in control if you are immediately responding to whatever he says. So first, you have to discredit in the eyes of the viewer the fact that the questions even came up. Nah, I'm I'm a great person. You're a bad person. But since we've established that you're a bad person, here's the easily found answers to the issues that you have. Make no mistake, Nikki Haley is good at this. And also, Dr. Morgan Bruce Reeves has some thoughts about God and weed. My theological explanation is behind this physical universe, there's a God. Not only is he powerful, he's magnificently creative. All the wonders of the world first existed in the imagination of God. The Grand Canyon, Everglades, cotton, corn, marijuana, and hemp. So I would take your, rather than your 401k plan for your retirement uh, plan, I would allow you to invest in the hemp milk, which is good for cancer. And those people who are hurting out there, and you need that medication, I'm going to get it to you. Time's expired. Now let's get to Nikki Haley in a bit of a tricky spot. Every candidate is going to understand that their opponents have an opposition file. They know the conversations that you don't want to have. And here's a conversation that Nikki Haley, as governor, did not want to have. The placement of the Confederate flag at the State House of South Carolina. This is her response to Shaheen bringing it up. For context, Shaheen had gone public and said that the Confederate flag should be removed, but a month before this debate. Governor. Thank you. You know, the Confederate flag is a very sensitive issue. And what I can tell you is over the last three and a half years, I spend a lot of my days on the phones with CEOs and recruiting jobs to this state. I can honestly say I have not had one conversation with a single CEO about the Confederate flag. What is important here is that we look at the fact that, yes, perception of South Carolina matters. That's why we have everybody answering the phones. It's a great day in South Carolina. That's why we're being named the friendliest state, and the most patriotic state and getting all these great accolades. But we really kind of fixed all that when you elected the first Indian-American female governor, when we appointed the first African-American U.S. senator. That sent a huge message. What sent a strange message was when we had Senator Shaheen, who has been in the Senate 15 years, not once ever mentioned the Confederate flag, never taken the well on the Confederate flag, has no bill talking about the Confederate flag, and one month prior to the election decides that the Confederate flag has to come down. Again, it's a lot of talk and it's very little action. For the record, Nikki Haley did remove the Confederate flag from the State House in 2015, about a year After this debate. And there we go. That is our debate prep on Nikki Haley. My 
overall thoughts are that, that she is a camera ready professional. It would not shock me if she comes out with some some moments. I mean, let's understand that moments in the first debate don't always translate. Right. The first Democratic debate was where Kamala Harris just KO'd eventual running mate Joe Biden by calling him a racist who prevented her or wanted to prevent her for from going to school when uh, that little girl was me, at which point she immediately sold uh, T-shirts about it. Anyway, uh, uh, that being and I don't want to immediately say, okay, well, Nikki Haley is the Kamala Harris of this debate. Because I actually think that Nikki Haley is more camera ready than Kamala. Kamala is not great the longer that you sit with her. She's kind of like the Pepsi of debate talents. Uh, uh, It's a better first note, but it's not a great full can experience. Whereas Haley, I do think is a little bit more Coca-Cola. I think she does have substance. But she's going to have to go on the attack in this. And that's something that we have not seen a lot of her. When she gets scrappy, she gets idealistic. And it's hard to play the idealist in a field where the person who is running far and away beyond the rest of the field is the most iconic disruptor of your party in the last 50 years. So all that being said, I wouldn't be shocked if Nikki Haley comes out and I would not be shocked if Nikki Haley really goes after either Ron DeSantis or Tim Scott. In fact, that's, that's who I think. I mean, everybody on that stage is probably going to go after Ron DeSantis and they're just going to hope he implodes so so they can take you know the, the 7% that he has over them right now but that's that's who i i think but but on the other side she's friends with tim scott she understands that that her only path is to begin to gain momentum in iowa and then cap it off in south carolina she's got a long way to go between here and there she's got to make a splash in the first debate So expect a far more aggressive version of Nikki Haley than we heard here today. This is your update. Brought to you by TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Head on over there right now. Get our $3 level, which gives you two bonus podcasts each and every week. Head on over there right now. Take politicsseriously.com. Devin Archer, an associate of Hunter Biden, testified in Congress that Hunter Biden used his father's names for business dealings by putting then Vice President Biden on speakerphone with business partners. Although he went on to say that Biden never discussed business matters. So he would put Biden on the phone with people to demonstrate that he had access to Biden. But according to Devin Archer, he did not talk business in those moments. 
Republicans point to this testimony as evidence against President Biden, suggesting that he was involved with his son's business dealings. And that seems to be what Archer said. But Democrats maintain that there is no direct link between the president and his son's business entanglements because, again, Archer said that they never discussed business in these calls. Indeed, the illusion of access, according to Archer, is what Hunter Biden was selling. Archer consistently emphasized that Biden never engaged in business talks. That is the big guy. The testimony has reignited discussion about the Biden's family's connections, but Archer's counsels has stated that Archer simply answered all questions honestly. This is a weird one because it does move the goalposts a little bit. Joe Biden has maintained that he had nothing to do with Hunter Biden's business dealings. And now it appears that he had something to do with Hunter Biden's business dealings. Now, was there... So so basically right now, the, the, the goalposts are being moved from there was no interaction at all to yes, there was interaction, but nothing actually happened. Which means that the Republicans do now have a cudgel that the Democrats have conceded, that the Biden White House has now conceded. Hunter Biden was selling influence to the White House. That's what Hunter Biden was selling. And that's what the Democrats are are saying now. Yes, but it was an empty briefcase. So he was selling a thing. That's what people were buying. So Hunter Biden was all over the world selling the idea that he could influence American policy through his father. What the Democrats are now saying is that yes, and he didn't. Now, how this continues to roll, we will see. Because some Republicans, including Kevin McCarthy, who creaked open the door to an impeachment, really want to move forward with that strategy. Others would like to just continue to dirty up Joe Biden or to keep pulling these threads. But I've been frustrated by a lot of the coverage because it's pretty much run the Democratic... Uh, line on this you know pretty lockstep where I I do think this is a moving of the goalposts because Joe Biden has said repeatedly he had nothing to do with this nothing happened nothing was wrong and so now the question is does Joe Biden believe that Hunter Biden selling again Devin Archer's words The illusion of influence was wrong. Was it wrong for Hunter Biden to misrepresent his ability to work in concert with his father? That is something that Joe Biden will probably not answer because he obviously family is something for which he takes very seriously. And he has stood up for his son. But it is interesting. Attorneys for Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton are pushing to have 19 of the 20 impeachment articles against him, which will be tried next month, dismissed, citing Texas's prior term doctrine, which maintains that officials cannot be removed for actions prior to their current term. Despite widespread allegations of misconduct, 
including bribery and abuse of power. Paxton's lawyers argue that voters are already exposed to extensive negative campaigning about Paxton's actions did indeed choose to re-elect him, reflecting the people's will. Paxton's impeachment concerns his controversial dealings with friend and donor Nate Paul. While Article 8, related to whistleblower complaints, wasn't requested for dismissal, Paxton has settled for $3.3 million with deputies who claimed retaliation after the uh, reported alleged abuses. Separate from the state proceedings, the FBI has investigated Paxton's effort to assist Paul, who was arrested after Paxton's impeachment by the Texas House. So of the 19 of the 20 charges, the one that he is not saying should be dismissed is him retaliating against the whistleblowers. (laughs) So he's saying, yep, okay, you can try me on that on one charge, not the 20 charges that the whistleblowers brought up. This thing is going to happen, and it's going to be very, very, very interesting to watch. And finally, from our friends at Punchbowl, President Joe Biden has decided to keep the U.S. Space Command headquarters in Colorado, defying his predecessor, President Donald Trump's decision to move it to Alabama. Senator Michael Bennett asserted that Biden's move corrected a bad decision made by Trump, emphasizing that the decision was based on readiness and national security, not politics. However, Alabama's lawmakers are not backing down, claiming that Biden's choice was politically motivated and disregarded the merits of Huntsville as the best site for Space Command. Bennett defended the decision, stating that Colorado was chosen based on its merit alone and not influenced by any unrelated factors, such as Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville's actions on Alabama, basically his strike that he is not going to approve any Pentagon uh, Pentagon promotions until the Pentagon changes their abortion policy or Alabama's abortion laws themselves. Despite the ongoing controversy, Biden's decision reaffirms the administration's commitment to make basing decisions based on national security interests rather than political considerations. That's the line from the White House while they are making a decision based on political considerations. I mean, this one's fascinating and I don't know the ins and outs of it, but if I'm gonna take a guess, the air force wants space command, which is now technically underneath it to be very close to it because they would like for space command to continue to be effectively an, an all but totally controlled subsidiary of the Air Force, which it is right now. And if you move it away, that's the road to Space Command becoming something that is more on par with the Air Force. That's my guess, right? Now mix into these the whole Tommy Tuberville thing and the fact that I am sure at some point he was reminded, hey, nice state you got there be a shame if you didn't get space command maybe you should relent you've made your point tuberville why don't you just let this go and everything else can go according to plan and so now this is the retaliation for it there's no doubt that politics has played into this and i don't just mean the politics that we read about in congress i also assume that there are a lot of interpentagon politics that are playing into this 
And that is your update. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you need to go to get two bonus episodes each and every week. Thank you to everybody who supports this show. We're in the beginning of a new month. Now is the time to get on board. TakePoliticsSeriously.com Donald Trump and money. Again, I'm always reminded of the patron saint of D.C. spending. What a D.C. guy, Patrick Ewing. One of the greatest quotes in basketball history. Yeah, we make a lot, but we spend a lot too. And that is something that I find extraordinarily, extraordinarily relevant when it comes to political campaigns. In the first half of 2023, according to newly released filings, Donald Trump's joint fundraising committee amassed a staggering $53.8 million, overshadowing all Republican contenders. However, combined expenses from the committee and its two affiliates, which include Trump's official campaign and his Save America PAC, amounted to $57 million over the same duration. This, as noted, Uh, in a Politico examination of campaign finance reports. These expenditures, which notably included over $17 in fundraising ventures like digital consulting and email rentals, could impose considerable financial stress as the election season intensifies. Save America Leadership PAC, in its separate biannual report, disclosed expenditures surpassing $24.4 million within the first six months, exclusive of transfers to associated committees. Legal consultations dominated the expenses at more than $21 million, with payments dispersed across nearly 50 unique entities. The Super PAC, Super PAC backing Trump, MAGA Inc., despite raising $14.6 million, expended $25.6 million, and additionally issued a $12 million refund to Save America. Financial flows between Trump's committees camouflage the actual state of finances. Nonetheless, Trump's fundraising prowess is obviously evident. The Joint Fundraising Committee received $23.7 million from small donations under $200. Beefy when it comes to a figure like that. And despite heavy uh, expenses, Trump's primary committees maintain a pretty healthy balance, around $32 million thanks to vigorous fundraising from previous years. Now, some of these numbers leaked out over the weekend, and I needed more context on them. And so we had to bring on the money man, Dave Leventhal from Raw Story. A heads up, we had this conversation the day before the official numbers were released. So that's why some of these might be a little bit different than what I just read. But what I just read is the final. Still, We need the context from Dave, right? Welcome back to the show, Dave. It is great to be back with you, Justin. So a a number crossed my field of vision, and there's not a lot that shocks me, especially in the world of campaign finance, but it was a number that I needed to have you on the show to see whether or not my sense of, wow, that seems odd, was, was relevant. And that is... That Donald Trump's super PAC or PAC, are they super still or are they just PACs, Dave? He's got both of them. So kind of depends which way you want to go here. 
What is the difference between a super PAC and a PAC? A, a super PAC, by definition, is a committee that can raise and spend unlimited amounts of money. And they can use that unlimited amounts of money to attack a candidate it doesn't like or to support a candidate that it does like so long as it doesn't sit down at a boardroom table and directly coordinate with the candidate that it's supporting. Now, this has all been set into motion in the years after the Citizens United decision back yes. in 2010, Supreme Court's decision. And, and we all have heard of Citizens United, but the practical effect of Citizens United in one respect was the uh, setting the, the stage for these super PACs to emerge and emerge they have. So for Donald Trump, he has a super PAC that's supporting him. It's raising a ton of money on its own. It just can't go and say, all right, well, we are going to run this ad on this date in this market, yeah. and, and we're going to spend money this way and that way. Also, super PACs, they're limited in the sense that they cannot donate money directly to a candidate. But in essence, in reality, 13 years on from Citizens United, they they act as a parallel campaign to the campaign that they're supporting. And there's absolutely nothing that's being done to reel them in, either by regulators or by um, criminal prosecutors who might say, ah, actually, the relationship here, way yeah. too close, and we're going to do something about it. No, that hardly ever happens. And then what's a political action committee? And a political action committee, they've been around for decades, uh, going back really to the 60s, which is when they first kind of came on the scene. And they are sort of your traditional political committee that will raise money in limited amounts. And depending on on the race or what kind of pack they are, the, the numbers may change. But generally speaking, we're talking about committees that can raise money in $5,000 chunks from mm -hmm. a certain other pack or individual or, or be it what it may. And, and then they can in turn give that money to different candidates. So if you start the Justin Young pack, you yeah. can go ahead, you can raise money in limited amounts from your friends, your colleagues and whatnot, and then spread that money around to other candidates that you support and that you like and that, that you want to back. They can also use that money to purchase advertisements and do other types of sundry political things, but mainly they're they're limited in what they can do. But Donald Trump has made great use out of both of these vehicles. And one important thing to note is that political action committees, they can spend money on legal fees, which ah. is very, very, very relevant to what I suspect we might be talking about today, because that's just in the news a little bit these days. Yeah. So th th this was the report that I saw over the weekend that Donald Trump's political action committee is not only funding his legal defense for what is at the time of this recording, two different cases. And we suspect it could be three, if not four within the next week to two weeks. But it's done so to the tune of $40 million uh, and and possibly has not only been paying for for Trump's defense, but the, 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 the defense of other people around him. You're absolutely correct. And and let's define what we're talking about here. Yes. So in the days after the 2020 election, Donald Trump, well, Joe Biden has won. Donald yep. Trump has lost. But Donald Trump is saying, no, I didn't lose. And I'm going to do everything that I can to make sure that I am president of the United States again for a second term 
when Inauguration Day comes around on January 20th of 2021. So on November 9th of 2020, Donald Trump formed an organization, a PAC, a traditional PAC, not a super PAC, but a regular PAC called Save America PAC. And what Save America PAC began to do almost immediately was raise a ton of money. Yes. What was it raising money for? Well, nobody really knew at first. And for the people who were donating money to it, nobody really cared because this was all about Donald Trump in peril, the president of the United States. I'm a true MAGA report, uh, supporter. I am going to do anything in my power to support Donald Trump in his moment of need. And it just started raising crazy amounts of money initially. And then January 6th happens and Donald Trump doesn't become president. And he goes and effectively runs a campaign without running a campaign for the presidency in 2024 from that moment on using Save America PAC as his primary vehicle. So he's collecting month after month, millions upon millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars at points, and and not really spending much of that money at all. So we mentioned just a moment ago that PACs can spread money around to other political committees, to other candidates, and use that money ostensibly to support a political cause or a movement or a party or, or the people who are part of that party who are trying to win elections themselves. Save America PAC was not really doing those types of things. Save America no. PAC really revolved around one person and one person only, and that was Donald Trump. And and that was something that you saw more of in 2022 when Donald Trump was handpicking some of his Different candidates, some of them did not do well, like David Perdue challenging Brian Kemp in a primary in Georgia. Some of them did well, like like J.D. Vance. But what they all had in common was that you were expected to be happy with Donald Trump showing up at an event for you and not in the same way that other people or other parties handpick their primary candidates, which is by supporting them and paying money into their campaign. Correct. Correct. And Save America PAC did make contributions to Republican candidates in the midterm elections. It did do that. But the amount of money that it donated directly to candidates or used, for example, on advertisements or promotional material for those candidates, the amount of money that it spent on those types of activities relative to the overall amount of money that Save America PAC had raised, it was a pittance. And, and Donald Trump had this massive surplus of cash that was just sitting there and not used. And he, he got criticized for that by some Republicans who were like, hey, uh, you're sitting on tens of millions of dollars here on this pack. And we want to we, we really want to win the Senate here. And we yeah. really want to yeah. make sure that we win the House and. Mr. Trump, it would be very helpful if you went ahead and actually gave some more money away that would be very crucial and key races around the country. Now, that didn't come to pass in the way that some Republicans wanted it to. Well, what was Donald Trump doing with this money? Donald Trump was hoarding this money, knowing full well at the time that he was a marked man by multiple investigations that were going around the country. And if there's one thing that Donald Trump doesn't like to do, 
it's spend his own money if there's no chance of him making money. So yeah. Donald Trump used Save America PAC in a way as a legal defense fund for a long period of time. Going into 2023 here, we're going to get new numbers. By the time this airs, we're probably going to have firm numbers of how much money Donald Trump's Save America PAC raised in 2023 for the first half of the year, how much it's spent, and how much of that money that was spent went to legal fees. We're hearing about $40 million, $40 million for the first half of this year is the number that's being reported by the Washington Post. We'll see if that holds true. But that's an extraordinary amount of money (laughs) under any circumstance for anything. And the fact that it's just going to legal expenses for Donald Trump underscores how donors who were giving to Donald Trump perhaps expecting that he would be using the money for different purposes or or might not necessarily want that money to be used for Donald Trump's own personal legal defense. Well, that's what it's ultimately getting used for. And I should note very quickly, too, that today, if you get a text message from Donald Trump's political campaign, his 2024 presidential campaign, or you get an email, some sort of solicitation, Justin. Yeah. And and you send $100 to what you think is Donald Trump's 2024 presidential campaign. Go and read the fine print, because at the end of that donation form on the website that you go to, there's going to be a little message. And it says something to the sort of that your donation will be split between two entities. You're giving money to something called the Trump Save America JFC. And no, when we say JFC, we're not talking about no. something that, you know, is like a word you can't say on television. Yeah, that, 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 it, it is not it is not internet slang for the son of God. No. It, it, correct. Uh Jesus is not involved in Donald Trump's campaign at least, no. you know, as we know it. So, but what is this thing? Well, what it is, is a joint fundraising committee, which is what JFC stands for in this context. And when you make that $100 donation, $90 of your donation is indeed going to Donald Trump's presidential campaign, but $10 is going to, wait for it, Save America PAC. And and that's not advertised. Donald Trump is not, you know, putting that in some sort of neon light. He's not highlighting the fact that a donation that you make is basically going to his legal defense, but that's the reality of the situation and comes at a time when Donald Trump has now created a separate actual legal defense fund that is going to raise money for not himself, so he says, but money for people in his immediate orbit who may also get wrapped up in the various investigations and and now criminal cases that uh, they have before their feet. Forty million dollars on legal. That's a lot. Just to give folks context, uh, uh, what was understood to be a good raise of uh, uh, an initial quarter with Ron DeSantis was in the twenties. So this is double what that was in in you know being brought in. And Ron DeSantis was rightly criticized for his burn rate and, and how much he was spending. Forty million dollars is huge, but. From what you were saying before, this is not 40 million kind of hand to mouth. This is if these numbers are correct. This was from a gigantic pile of money that has been building since election night 2020. 
Correct. And so Donald Trump has more or less had two plus years to build a massive cash corpus that he was going to use for a rainy day. And the rainy day came and then another rainy day came and more are yet to come. And so this has been to give Donald Trump full credit for his financial shrewdness here. This has been a phenomenal windfall for him. And again, this was never advertised really at any point as, hey, donate money to Save America PAC and you will be helping Donald Trump win election. That, that, that was always the idea that, all right, well, this money is going to go to help Donald Trump do whatever he's going to do politically. But it was never advertised, I should say, as a legal defense fund. This is going to help Donald Trump stay out of prison, going to help him fight against Jack Smith, going to ha- help him fight yeah. against... Fannie Willis or or the evil, horrible people in New York. What? No, none of that. And yet this is where it's going toward. So did Donald Trump do anything illegal in raising this money, perhaps under a false pretense or or not totally accurate, true pretense? No, there's nothing really illegal about it. It was vague enough. It was always in the communication broad enough where he could very, very reasonably have plausible de- deniability that he was going to use the money for any certain such purpose. Uh, and and so here we are. And about the only thing that has been problematic along the way is that Donald Trump has used some really shade-tastic tactics uh, in trying to get people to make donations or he gets them to make donations and does some things that they were not expecting. For example, there were these little check boxes that were put on a donation form. The New York Times did some fantastic reporting around this. And those check boxes would be pre-checked. And next to it would be fine print about, oh, hey, if this box is checked, you're going to make a monthly donation. And a lot of people were thinking, oh, I'm donating $100. But yet they were donating $100 this a month. month. Yeah. And then next month and the month after that and so on and so forth. And then similarly, there would be boxes that were checked that would say, hey, that hundred dollars you gave. Great. But we're going to add a fifty dollar bonus to it to help supercharge your support of Donald Trump. And that box would be checked. So you'd have people who think and they're given that hundred dollars. They initially give one hundred and fifty dollars and then they're on the hook for perpetuity because of these boxes being pre-selected. Uh, highly controversial, not not something that a lot of people were expecting. And in fact, Donald Trump, because of so many complaints that his committee got, ended up having to make significant refunds to people who were freaked out. And hey, look, if, you're, if your grandpa is 85 years old yeah. and, and can barely like figure out how to turn on the television and is responding to emails or text messages or whatnot from Donald Trump, He's not going to be unchecking these boxes. And and there was a certain, and I don't want to overstate this, but there was a certain elder abuse element to this. And Donald Trump is not the only politician to have done such a uh, thing like this. There are politicians, many Republicans. There are some examples on the, on the left as well of this type of activity happening. Uh, at best, it's disingenuous. At worst, it is abusive. And it's something that Congress is going to have to basically pass a new law for in order to outlaw this in a major way to get rid of the whole kitten caboodle. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is just, I think, uh, a, 
politics finding the line that a lot of email marketing has has tried to find. And uh, uh, obviously <laughs> politics is a copycat league. Uh, if, if one thing works, then you want to copy any and everything and push the line further and further. And, and I would be very, very happy if this is the line for email marketing with this kind of stuff going forward, that having any kind of recurring payment box pre-checked is that that, that is that is a bridge too far. And, and the difference here between just standard email marketing and political email marketing is with standard email marketing. The people who are the players on the field are not usually the ones who are making the laws about yes. it. Where in politics, the referees and the players, they're the same darn The people. same people. Uh, okay, so let, let's get into that $40 million number, because this was really the reason why I had you on. Obviously, Donald Trump's situation right now is unprecedented in terms of a former president being rung up on these charges. But is there anything in your encyclopedic brain of money and politics that we can even compare $40 million in, in legal fees being spent from a pack? Is there anything close to it? No, there's not. And the, the simple answer. So we can kind of scratch and claw for examples that might be related or legal troubles that other past presidential candidates have had and you know, Hillary Clinton spent money on legal fees to a significant degree, and so did Barack Obama or even Joe Biden. And if you run a presidential campaign where you are measuring the amount of money raised in not the millions or tens of millions of dollars, but the hundreds, hundreds. of millions of dollars, yeah. and then yeah. going north of a billion recently, you're you're going to have some lawyers involved, right? And you got to have the lawyers who are going to be helping you on the campaign finance front. You're going to have the lawyers who are going to be helping you on the personnel front. You're going to have the constitutional lawyers. I mean, it goes on and on. And these guys aren't exactly cheap. So, okay, you can expect that there are going to be over the course of a campaign, a presidential campaign, millions of dollars of legal fees that are going to get racked up. But what we're talking about here with Donald Trump is somebody who wasn't even a presidential candidate technically, when he was raising all of this money in 2021 and most of 2022, and and doing so in a way that just defies any comparison, easy yeah. or otherwise. So no, if, if you're looking for a parallel, if, if you're looking for some sort of thing to hang your hat on that has happened in the past, you are going to be disappointed. But what we see right now is that Donald Trump is still doing this as a presidential candidate. And this, would, this is what makes it so fascinating, is that he is a presidential candidate right now. He is raising money actively uh, for and aggressively for his presidential campaign in 2024 as he leads in the polls and continues to do so in a major way, but is using his presidential campaign as a vehicle for kind of having like this side money that is being siphoned into his legal effort. So his presidential campaign now is fueling that operation that was pre-existing and standing for two years prior to him being a presidential candidate. And there's kind of been this quiet, seamless transition uh, as, as he transmits himself from presidential candidate in waiting in 2024 yeah. to presidential yeah. candidate. And and very few people are, are 
it aware at any level that that they are donating when they donate to Donald Trump to Donald Trump's direct legal defense. Well, yeah. And, and then and then there's the, the 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 side of it now that, you know, even if things were spelled out explicitly, that it's like uh, 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 Donald Trump had a, a a gif in which he was just saying, like, pay my lawyer's bills. Uh, I wonder if it would even matter for for folks who are, are kicking into his campaign now, considering how politicized everything has become. But that being said, so you're you're saying in general, you could look back in history and you can say, and and this is something that especially post two thousand, uh, when when having lawyers on retainer was extraordinarily important, and and playing kind of lawfare uh, uh, in in a closely contested election became not a hypothetical, but something real. That we've seen an escalation of lawyers on retainer for major campaigns, but this is something beyond the pale, both obviously in what they are defending and in the amount of money that is being raised and spent. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure historians who are much smarter than I could go back to the 2000 election and talk about the direct line from that experience and, and the, the, extraordinary legal situation that we had in the aftermath of the uh, 2000 vote uh, and it being contested and going to the Supreme Court and drawing a line from that experience to what we have today. But yeah, if if you know that an election is going to be close, if you know that an election has a distinct possibility of being contested, you better have a darn good legal team. And yes, candidates and political parties can raise for recount funds and yeah. other types of legal funds uh, for exactly that type of scenario. But that is not taking at all into consideration what Donald Trump is going through right now, no. which is the the completely 100 percent, 1000 percent unprecedented scenario and situation where he is being charged with dozens and dozens of felony counts in multiple jurisdictions and running for president at the same time too, and quite possibly is going to be the Republican nominee when we're having a conversation a year from now about the Republican and the Democrat running in the general election, which quite possibly, again, will be Joe Biden, Donald Trump. Trump, Trump, Trump Biden too. This time it's personal. Uh, yeah, I mean, because that, that that's... When 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 you talk about normal legal expenses, at least in my mind, it's stuff like, all right, you know that there's a pivotal there are pivotal counties in like uh, I'll use a 2022 example. So in Arizona, there were these you know, Maricopa County or, or various different things that needed to swing one way or another for uh, either the Democrat or the Republican where machines were down or something like that. And, and a lot of like legal expenditures from my perspective are like, all right, you want to hire the best law firm in town that immediately knows how to file an injunction and get the hours moved later. If it's in a district that, you know, you need to turn out. And so that's where you spend a lot of money. And obviously when you were talking about a national campaign, you were doing that to scale for all of the battlegrounds you possibly can conceive of turning the election. And that does get extraordinarily pricey, but it isn't let's hire a 
huge legal. T- and that, I guess that's the other thing is we don't know exactly where this money is going. We know that it is spent, <laughs> but we do not know where it is going. We do know that Donald Trump faces these charges and he has hired different people for for each of them, it seems. Yes. And it, another wrinkle, too, which is going to be quite fascinating to suss out is who he's truly paying. Donald Trump, let us recall, is having a hard time finding good lawyers. Yeah. And there have been a lot of lawyers who you would imagine would would be salivating over the opportunity to in a criminal defense situation, represent a former president of the United States. And yet we've had so many lawyers who are just not interested. They are taking passes because they just don't want to be associated with any part of this. And for, for reasons that that may be their own or, or, or maybe a little bit more obvious, but the bottom line there is that sometimes Donald Trump may be in a situation, and we'll find this out when we have hard numbers, if he's paying a premium uh, at all, or or he's having to stretch his money a little bit more than he might have to otherwise because of this bizarro legal world that he finds himself in. Well, there's that. There's certainly, I'm sure, that there are distinguished lawyers for whom do not want to be involved in these particular Donald Trump cases. But I wonder if we were to go to a related multiverse where Donald Trump is in the exact same predicament that he's in right now, but also doesn't have the reputation for not paying people when he doesn't like the decisions or performance from said vendor uh, up to and including lawyers. I, I, I wonder whether or not there would still be the moral backbone that there seems to be with some of these law firms, because I, I, I suspect that his capacity to not pay people also factors into the fact that he's having a hard time getting top law firms. His capacity to not pay people in, in just about every uh, venue is, is, is legion and legendary. We were literally writing just a couple of days ago about the, uh, the, the great city of Erie, Pennsylvania, and how Donald Trump was going to have a campaign rally there. And officials in Erie are still waiting for Donald Trump to pay a public safety-related bill that they sent him from a couple years ago when he had a rally there, and he never paid it up. Now, argues that he doesn't have to, but the city says he does. So that's a legal fight. And they're they're invoicing him again, probably not going to get their money. But yet Donald Trump is still, from a legal standpoint, going to have to respond to something like that if they ultimately choose to be litigious over in Erie, Pennsylvania. But little things like that add up, too. And that's sort of a funny little subplot to all of this on how many cities have been screwed out of money by Donald Trump coming to town. Here he is again, indicted and charged on dozens of felony counts and crapping on the police constantly, at least at the federal level law enforcement, and yet uh, being the beneficiary of what is a a monstrous response from the localities because they have to go and protect an event like that, not just for Donald Trump, but for the public locally, and uh, Donald Trump stiffing them, at least in the estimation of the cities that are providing the, the host venue for Donald Trump within their city limits. To be fair, those kinds of conflicts tend to be more common. No. They do. Uh, yeah. Donald Trump has taken this to a level that we've never seen before. <laughs> yeah. been like many things with Donald who, Trump. This is a thing, but it's more of a thing with him. Uh, are, are you shocked by that? Uh, no, you, no, 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 no. That you, is, you that's, that's kind of his, that's kind of his, uh, that's kind of his deal. 
That's what he does. It is kind of his deal. Oh, man. And so so uh, if folks want to keep an eye on this story themselves, what should they be on the lookout for in terms of any kind of filing from Save America PAC? So right now, to, to brass tacks here, we, we are speaking here on July 31st, and we, yep. we just had some campaign numbers come out uh, a couple weeks back, and those were for presidential candidates themselves because yes. of the weirdo calendar that we have for campaign money, finance, filing related things. We get another bite at the apple today when different types of PACs and super PACs who are on a certain schedule and don't file monthly, but file quarterly. Hang with me here. Yeah. But because it's an off election year, don't have to file quarterly. They can ah. file semi-annually. Oh, geez. This is their, this is their, their semi-annual disclosure. So next year, they'll have to file every quarter. This year, they get to do it twice, once at the midpoint of the year and once at the end of the year. And uh, yeah, I, I've been covering this stuff for 20 plus years, and I still have to constantly go it's back. It's never straightforward. Look, it's, it, look it, at the rules for who in, files In years, I mean, it, in, in odd-numbered years, uh, you file every time Toyota-thon starts. And, and you know, if, if, if you're astrological, if Mercury is in retrograde <laughs> or whatever the heck, then you, you do it backwards on the even day. Yeah, it, exactly. You whatever. file twice. Yeah. Right, right. Yep. Oh, man. Well, we will keep an eye on this. Thank you so much for giving us clarity. Dave Leventhal of Raw Story, the money man, joining us yet again. Anything not related to Donald Trump's legal woes that we should keep on our radar from your shop over there? Yes, you should. Uh, Thank you for setting me up uh, on that. I want to shout out my colleague, uh, Alexandria Jacobson, who just today published the final installment of a three-part series. It's called Losing Track. And what Losing Track is all about is our national security system and a specific aspect of that. And that is tracking security clearances. Now, this sounds like a pretty esoteric topic. I think if you read Losing Track, you are going to be uh, chilled into a level that you haven't been before because it's some pretty scary stuff and some very, very eye-opening reporting that she did. You can find that, as always, on rawstory.com. I mean, I think in, in, in an era when we've got secrets spilling out on meme discords, uh, uh, tracking who has security clearance seems like a pretty important uh, situation. I will just simply add that uh, today's story uh, focuses on the question of what happens if you're a far right extremist with tendencies toward violence and if you are a red blooded American civil servant and perhaps just happen to be black or Asian, who's going to get the security clearance first? We answer that question. And interesting. Story. Interesting. All right, uh, Dave, thank you so much. Thank you. And that wraps it up for us today. Politics, 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 written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. We want to thank the money man, Dave Leventhal. You can go to letter P, letter X, number three, guest.com. You want to send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. And by the way, send me, send me see your favorite, uh, your favorite 
debate moments. I'm just so happy. I'm, I'm just never happier than when we're in debate season. But you know, many of you might not know, I made the game of presidential debate with my friend John Teasdale, the contender. You can buy it now on Amazon. Go, do it. The contender. It's a really fun game, especially if you like watching the debates with friends. If you want to find me on X, FKA Twitter, you can uh, hit me up at Justin R. Young, PX3 Tweets. If you want to find me live on the internet, it is px3live.com. Newsletter is px3newsletter.com. And you can share this podcast with your friends, (laughs) friends, family, and clergy at px3podcast.com. Easy for me to say. You can support me with a one-time donation, paypal.me slash payjury. Venmo is justin-young-20. Cash app, px3cash. And you can send me anything you'd like in the mail, P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. Make sure you make it out to Justin Young. P.O. Box people get super weird when you write names of the podcast because they think it's a like an actual business I'm running out of there and not just a, a, a place for you guys to send me stuff. So make sure... You make it out to Justin Young. Of course, you can always get our bonus podcast content at takepoliticsseriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week. $10 tier gets you that, plus your name right at the end of the show like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Jason, Andres, Matt, John Gross, C. Garcia, El Basso, Matthew T., John, Craig Potts, MC Dradio, Unsafe DB Levels, Amanda, ye old pinball shop, DP4 Bongo, Catherine, Todd, and Vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Edison, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, select, start, Dr. G, Neil, Charles, Darren, 100 mile runner. Idris Arzlani and Blue Fernand Lanina, DL, Steven, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Molly's dashing debut, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul is awesome. Brad, Richard, just another pilot, middle-aged Mike who loves Frank got abducted, Utah, Jimmy Montana, the Gen, A-L-D-L-D-L-D. Really? Chopper, Andrew, and Joshua, if you want your name right on this show, there is only one place to do it. Take politics seriously. Dot com. I don't know what's happening on Friday's edition of the show. Actually, wait, hold on. Let me take a look. Oh, I do know this. Yeah. Debate prep. Our debate prep for Friday Chris Christie. Oh, we're going back to Jersey, baby. Which exit? The exit that brings pain from the hands of Chris Christie. I, I, I'm pretty sure we're going to we're going to do Governor Christie. We're not going to do presidential candidate Christie. Although I'll be shocked if I have the self-control to not play the Marco Rubio clip again. Until then, this is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.